Neil. This is hell. A listener actually asked, what's the deal with Neil Young yelling, thank you, Chuck, at the beginning of the show? And I'll tell you all about that during listener feedback after our guest. The revolutions, plural, will not be televised, but we're not on television. This is hell, where all the uprisings will stream live from our studio above a pool table in a bar. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing today, Alex Jerry, and is Jonah here today as well? Jonah Tomko-Smith? Uh, no, he'll be here for Friday's show. Okay. Today we're discussing more of the news that the news does not want you to discuss when we speak with independent journalist Jacqueline Kovarik, who posted the article, Bolivia's anti-indigenous backlash is growing. The ouster of President Evo Morales has reignited the country's long-standing racism against its indigenous peoples at the nation, is where the article was posted. Jacqueline is based in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and is the web editor, I believe she still is the web editor, for the North American Congress on Latin America. This week's question from Al is, what's keeping you up at night? What's keeping you up at night? Leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. This week's winner gets a copy of the book we already featured on this week's show, Franny Noodleman's Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind and the U.S. Military, and it is a fascinating read. Alex, do you have any listener responses to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What's keeping you up at night? What is keeping you up at night? Jack W. says, ill-timed phone notifications that cannot be disabled announcing new Buttigieg gaffes. (laughs) Wally R. says, Trump derangement syndrome. Mike A. says, my drunk neighbor and his lady friend. Aaron B. says, wondering if Bill Gates can survive a tax hike. <laughs> Sebastian M. says, something between the fear of being alive during an extinction event and having to poop yet again. <laughs> what keeps you up at night? What's keeping you up at night? Garrett S. says, my rotting gums. <laughs> oh, good. man. Uh, Chris, L., Chris L. says, oh, those goddamn alley cats with the tap dancing and the cane twirling atop a fence. I've run out of boots to throw at them. <laughs> and Jessica B. says, FedEx's $0 tax bill and more literally their excessive air traffic. So are all those the most recent ones? Because I printed out a whole bunch and <laughs> those were in the list that I have here. Uh, sorted by new, but I think there's some other ones. Oh, okay. Uh, Maybe I just didn't sort them correctly. Keep listening throughout today's show to hear more of our listeners' responses to this week's question from hell. Tune in Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time to find out if you've won Franny Noodleman's Fighting Sleep. You can hear our interview with Franny and the rest of yesterday's show, including our interview with Kianga Yamada-Taylor about her new book, a fascinating book, Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership. You can hear both of those interviews and that entire show at thisishell.com. Also, on upcoming on Friday, we'll be talking to former CIA case officer Jeff Sterling, Jeffrey Sterling who blew the whistle on the CIA for racial discrimination in an agency operation that revealed nuclear weapons secrets to Iran. In doing so, Jeffrey said he became the agency's scapegoat for the embarrassing public revelations of the bumbling Iranian operation, despite there not being any evidence he divulged any sensitive information to anyone, ever. Friday, we'll be speaking with Jeffrey about his new book on his ordeal called Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. And of course, we'll wrap up this week the way we do most every week with a moment of truth from Jeffrey Dorchin. While the news is singularly obsessed with the impeachment hearings, there's plenty of other news happening. And I must say that my favorite news story in the last week has to be the one reported at interestingengineering.com, a website I go to on a regular basis. No, it's not. This is the first time I've ever heard of it. Chilean protesters used lasers to bring down police drone, and it worked. Between 40 to 50 bright laser beams were pointed at the drone, which was seen falling from the sky minutes later. It is absolutely inspirational. The story reports a technological feat has emerged amid the Chilean protests. A video of protesters bringing down a police drone has gone viral on social media sites. These protesters didn't use any physical or gun force to bring the drone down. Instead, they used another form of technology, lasers. A lot of bright green laser beams were pointed in unison at the drone, which can be seen moving erratically before quickly falling down to earth. The video is awesome, and everyone should view it. We have it at our Facebook page. 
page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, but you can find it easily online by searching on Chile, laser, drone, protest. Some on Twitter are claiming the Chilean protesters got the idea from the protesters in Hong Kong. The Twitter account CBass, that's at CB4SS, posted, quote, the use of lasers was a friendly advice that the Hong Kong protesters gave. They proved to be useful at dazzling cops, avoiding them to shoot protesters aiming their eyes. Also, they proved to be super effective against cop drones and helicopter pilots. So now there is a great defensive tool. Lasers are defensive tools against surveillance and brute force. That's when I thought maybe this is hell should get on this booming laser market and start selling lasers at our store at thisishell.com when you click on support. Just like the idea I had of putting the This Is Hell logo on surgical masks protesters use to protect themselves from tear gas and mace, we'd be providing tools needed for protest while making a killing. Hell, why stop there? We could print t-shirts with the Andean indigenous flag, the Wapala, printed on them, showing our support for the indigenous who are currently under attack in Bolivia following the ouster of Evo Morales as president. As soon as he fled for Mexico, the indigenous flag, which Evo made the second national flag, was torn down across the country with police tearing the flag off their uniforms and military personnel doing the same. It's a beautiful flag and looks really cool on t-shirts. In fact, Lots of people are now selling them online, cashing in on a humanitarian disaster, a coup, violence. So why shouldn't we? Besides, we desperately need the money as the cost for web services keeps increasing as more and more people are downloading and streaming audio from our website. But we're not going to do that for several reasons. One, we are horrible at capitalism in that we do not want to reproduce capitalism, encourage consumerism, increase our carbon footprint, or profit off the real struggles of others. Secondly, having our logos seen at protests, branding them as being associated with our show seems pretty exploitative and just plain wrong. There is no question, no doubt, absolutely no doubt in my mind that we could make some really good money, or in this case, horribly awful, really bad money from commercializing protests and movements, even struggles by the indigenous. But that sounds, I don't know, pretty colonial to me, extracting profits from the blood, sweat, and tears of people putting their lives on the line in order to have the freedom and equality that all people truly deserve. That's why even when coming up with a way to finally make the money this show desperately needs, for me, this is hell coming up on the show we're going to be uh we'll have more on the overthrow of avo morales and what that means for indigenous bolivians later this week we're going to have a cia whistleblower who was imprisoned and is now free and during the moment and we'll have a moment of truth with jeff dorchin i want to get into listener feedback just oh let's not do that until later I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. The ouster overthrow, the coup that forced President Morales to flee Bolivia, has been followed by violent attacks on the indigenous, of which Evo was the first to ever be elected president. Here to tell us what is happening, what she is witnessing in Bolivia, independent journalist Jacqueline Kovarik posted the article, Bolivia's anti-indigenous back- backlash is growing. The ouster of President Evo Morales has reignited the country's long-standing racism against its indigenous peoples at the nation. Jacqueline is based in Cochabamba, Bolivia. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jacqueline. Hi, thank you for having me. You can find out more about Jacqueline at her website, JacquelineKovarik.com. We have a direct link to it at our website. You can follow her on Twitter at JM underscore Kovarik. You write, by the time President Evo Morales announced his resignation on Sunday, November 10th, the country had been in turmoil for three weeks, flanked by his vice president and the head of the Senate, who were also stepping down. Morales called for an end to the violence that followed a contested election and for Bolivia's conservative opposition to stop pursuing capturing and mistreating my ministers, union leaders, and their family members. Now, a lot of my questions, Jacqueline, are going to be kind of in that 
devil's advocate area because I've received a lot of emails from people who are very critical of Morales and especially the left. One criticism was that while there were claims of violence by Morales against his ministers, union leaders, and their family members, as you report, in reality, they're saying there were roving mobs, not of the right wing, but of violent leftists and indigenous people. Is violence being committed by both sides in the wake of Evo Morales and his administration stepping down? To what degree, to what extent is violence being committed equally by both sides, as this emailer suggests? Yeah, okay, so there's a couple things to unpack there, because there was unrest starting right after the elections, which were on October 20th. I was in Tikipaya, which is a rural part of Cochabamba at the time, and that's like when the blockade started to happen. And in Cochabamba, for example, all of the blockades, all of the unrest that was happening in the city of Cochabamba were the opposition. And at that time, luckily, it wasn't super violent yet. Um, it was more just people not letting movement through the city of Cochabamba. That was the first week. And that was kind of a trend in all of the cities for the first two weeks after the election. In Cochabamba, in Santa Cruz, in Potosi and Sucre, and in La Paz itself, these blockades and these movements were from the opposition. That started to change when AVO stepped down on uh, the third Sunday after the election, three weeks after the election. And that was when people, primarily in El Alto, also people who are supporters of AVO in the Departed region, the coca growing region in the Cochabamba department, started to fight back, basically. And especially in El Alto, the reason that people were mobilizing the Monday and the Tuesday after AVO stepped down was because of anti-Indigenous acts that were committed by the opposition hours after AVO stepped down. A big one was the military started ripping off the Wipala from their uh, uniforms, which is the uh, flag that represents all the Indigenous, Native, and Afro-Bolivian communities, not only in Bolivia, but in the Andes in general. So this flag like means a lot for Indigenous people globally. Also, the Wipala flag was burned at the government palace, and um, the Camacho, who is a right-wing lawyer who um, has in many ways been a leader of the opposition movement in Bolivia, he entered the government palace, put a Bible on the tricolor flag, so Bolivia's national flag, and a pastor that by his side said that the Pachamama would never enter the government palace again, um, which Pachamama is like the earth, the earth goddess, basically the mother, mother earth for indigenous people in the Andes. Um, so there are these acts and the people in El Alto were fighting back sometimes with violence against these acts. Um, I wouldn't say that the violence has been equal because basically what I just said, the, the reason that the people have been fighting back since those indigenous acts is for a very specific reason. Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, I, I I can't not tell you how much I appreciate the fact that we're actually speaking to somebody who was there and saw what was happening. You write by that night, the uh, night of uh, Evo Morales stepping down, at least twenty officials from Morales's political party, Movement Towards Socialism or MAS MAS, had sought asylum at the Mexican embassy. The political exodus was abrupt. Again, to play devil's advocate, and I hate doing it, but the name of our show is "This Is Hell." What am I going to do? Uh, to play devil's advocate and consider the claims made by those who oppose Morales. Is Morales and his members' asylum in Mexico a sign that they were not popular in Bolivia, that they had so little support among the people that they could not any longer stay in country? No. Um, I would say kind of the opposite. The reason that we're seeing so much unrest that's unraveling into what some people are beginning to call a civil war at this point, especially because of the massacres that happened this past week in Sacaba on Thursday in a community outside of El Alto yesterday is because the country is so divided. And I would say about half of the country still supports them. That's also the reason why there was the electoral crisis in general. Um, but that's getting into another question that we could talk about more if you want to, but, but no, he didn't flee because most of the country doesn't support him. He fled because there were these threats of violence, not only to himself and to his vice president, but to people, um, to people lower in his party. And that's why they all stepped down as well to protect their families. That's why um, the president of the Senate stepped down. Um, and she, she, um, 
she even tried to enter the government palace recently and she was hit and and uh, kind of attacked by people on the street in Cochabamba. So it's 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 really hard for me not to call something a coup when people are stepping down precisely because they want the violence to stop against themselves and against their, like half the people in their country. And that's another thing is that indigenous people in general are beginning to be demonized and it's also becoming demonized to be called a mass supporter, a mestista. Um, that if you're a mestista, you're not being treated with dignity, you're not being treated with respect, and it's very possible that you're going to be attacked. Mm-hmm. You- and there are, videos, there are videos, like, starting on Sunday of people entering Avo's house um, and people entering or trying to attack other people who had to step down. So it's not, it's not something that can be denied. Are, in any way, is the left... It, are we distracted by trying to define this as whether it was a coup or not? Does that does the discussion of whether this was a coup or not distract us from far more important issues that are happening on the ground in Bolivia right now? Yeah, I would agree to that, especially with like the media coverage outside of the U.S. and like the the focus on like both if there was fraud and if there was a coup. Like I think they're important questions, but I think for a lot of people in Bolivia right now those questions are not as important as just how they can have peace, how they can protect themselves and like how they can move forward, which also was something really disheartening about Abel stepping down. Before he stepped down, myself and a lot of my friends in Bolivia thought that there like was no exit. There was no clear end to this because we didn't think that Abel would step down. And when he did, and when he did so because he wanted peace and wanted to pacify, we were really surprised, but we also had a little bit of hope because we thought that that meant that the violence would stop. And that has been exactly the opposite. Before, when Abel stepped down, the death count was four. Um, since Abel stepped down, which was on Sunday, the death count is over 20. And there, uh, I would say, you'd have to fact check this, but at least 14 of those people have been shot by the military. So it's kind of the opposite of what has happened as what we were hoping, which, which is really terrifying. And the, the question of if it's a coup, well, I think it's important, especially when we consider the the hand of the United States. And there were there were tapes recently with people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio speaking. So I think it's important to talk about that, especially considering our own responsibility as people from the U.S. I'm from the U.S., by the way. But beyond that, what's really important for people is just how there can be peace now, how we can move forward. And I was able to witness that really firsthand as well. Um, when Abel stepped down on Sunday, I was in the Yungas, which is part of the La De Paz department, but it's outside of the city and it was very safe there in large part because it was a mass, uh, area. So pe- there were not opposition people, um, causing disruptions and also because there's no military state or police state presence there. So it was a very safe place to be, but we, we decided we had to leave the country at that point. Um, and we had to get from the Yungas to the airport in El Alto, and we had to walk through blockades. And most of the blockades that I walked through were were neighborhoods doing what they call estamos haciendo, estamos vigilando, which basically means that we're doing our own kind of community vigilance to protect ourselves, and we want peace, and we, we don't really care at this point if we support Avro or not. We're here blockading to protect our communities. And that, I think that's where a lot of people fall. That's where a lot of people fall in El Alto as well. Um, and so, yeah, so I think focusing just on the question of if or not there was a coup is kind of ignoring what a lot of Bolivians are dealing with right now, which is just trying to figure out how they can have peace and how this violence will not escalate more, if that makes sense. We are speaking, it definitely does. We are speaking with independent journalist Jacqueline Kovarik. She is a graduate of New York University's Center on Latin American and Caribbean Studies and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Jacqueline has studied the Andean indigenous language of Quechua since October 2014 and and has been awarded four foreign language and area studies fellowships from the United States Department of Education. You write Morales had only begrudgingly agreed on Saturday, November 9th, the day prior to him stepping down to hold new presidential elections after mounting political pressure from the Organization of American States, the European Union, the United States, and a handful of Latin American countries. Did Morales step down believing he could run for re-election? Was that why he stepped down? Because he thought he would be allowed to run again and prove he was the rightful leader of Bolivia? That's a good question. Um, I do believe that, that when new elections were being called for, that people 
on the left, people who support Evo were assuming and kind of demanding that Evo would be part of those new elections. Because, well, if we take a step back, if there really was not the 40% and the 40% vote and the 10% margin needed to be elected in Bolivia, that's like how it works in Bolivia, then the next step would be doing a segunda vuelta, like a second elections, and that would be happening in December, and Evo and Leonardo would be running in those elections. So kind of people on the left were like, yes, that that's what needs to happen. And the, the, um, the audit that was happening by the uh, Organization of American States the idea was that if they found fraud or irregularities, then there would be a segunda vuelta and Ava would be in it. So that's kind of what was assumed. But when Ava stepped down, I honestly am not sure if at that point he was planning to run again. And I think that now um, that question is like unclear for a lot of people that that if that he would run again, I think probably not. But I honestly like I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so I don't have a clear answer to that. Sorry. So uh, his party, Mas, uh, is he the party and the party is him without Evo Morales? Do they have any leadership that could actually run for president and challenge the right wing government that seems unfortunately destined to one way or the other take power in Bolivia? Yeah, another great question. And you're kind of getting into... I think a lot of people who are really upset with what's happening now in Bolivia and the fact that it is definitely like leaving space for like far right, anti-indigenous, racist rhetoric to take center stage, like that's like really what is happening right now. That doesn't mean that we don't think that Evo and Linara and his party made mistakes. And actually the other day, I think it might've been yesterday in The Guardian, um, there was an article with an interview with Linara from Mexico City because he's in, in um, exile there as well or in asylum there as well. And he himself said, like, we're not denying these past 14 years we haven't made mistakes. Like, I would say that it would have been better if Abel hadn't run again this, this, uh, these elections. And it's precisely because of that, because it makes it really hard for this process of change of Professor de Gambio to move forward. And that ideally what should have happened is someone like Adriana Salvatierra, for example, she's, she was the president of the Senate. She's really young. She's 29. She's really awesome. And she, at least people on the left and people who follow the mass party really get excited about her. And people were about a year and a half ago expecting that she might run, but she didn't. There's also the Vito Kewanka. There's other people who, like, I personally think could have tried to run. And the question is why, why they didn't. And it's a good question. It's a big question about the pink tide in general. And, like, do leaders of the pink tide, like, are they capable of putting someone else forward? Um, I know a lot of people argue that, like, Evo felt like his change wasn't done. That's why he had a referendum in 2016 to see if he could run again, because a lot of people just in the Bolivian population were so happy, so behind him with how much positive change he made economically, socially, especially for the indigenous and Afro-Bolivian population who are collectively the majority of the population in Bolivia. And a lot of people say, no, there was a referendum in 2016, not because Evo was power hungry, but because a lot of people were saying, look, this is a change that has never happened in this country. This is like a change from like colonialism and neoliberalism that has finally changed in incredible ways. And we need more time than what we've been given to keep that change going. So I think that's how a lot of people feel. Um, I feel like that's true, but if he could have passed the torch to someone else who could keep that change going, that would have been like infinitely better because now the situation is that those mistakes um, that have created this power vacuum are being blamed on indigenous people in general. For example, there's no indigenous people in Añez, the new auto-declared president. There's not one indigenous person in her cabinet. So we're seeing the situation now where indigenous people, indigenous politicians don't have a voice now at all as a result. So, yeah. And I don't know, I think it's, I think it's very possible that, that the mass party made a lot of mistakes to the point that they weren't able to put someone else forward who would be able to continue to continue, to continue this revolution, basically, which is really sad. And I also know a lot of people on the left, both in Bolivia and in other parts of the world, but, but people on the left who are indigenous also feel like a, a lot of pain and a lot of mourning for kind of seeing this process that Bolivia needed, that like did so many good things for Bolivia and that it, it, it wasn't able to move on like we're seeing now. And that's like a very painful thing for a lot of people.
Yeah. I want to first. I want to really. I want to thank Dan Beaton from the Center for Economic Policy and Research for getting uh, for suggesting you as a guest and helping us get in contact with you. It, it, without Dan's help, uh, we wouldn't be getting this kind of fantastic report from Bolivia. Uh, Jacqueline, uh, another criticism of Evo Morales was he had been elected again despite the fact that his election defied term limits. To what extent was Evo running for his fourth consecutive term as president? To what extent was that unconstitutional? To what extent was that illegal? Yeah, it's it's a long story. So basically, Evo was elected in 2005. He came into power on the tail end of a neoliberal crisis in Bolivia, kind of like what we're seeing happening in Ecuador and Chile and to a lesser degree, like across the Americas right now. Um, there was a, there was a gas, something that we call a gas war in El Alto where people were fighting back because the, the current president at the time, uh, Sanjala, Gonzalo Santos Rosada, he wanted to privatize gas, and Alto was not okay with that, so they stepped up and they fought back. And six, over 60 people died in that, indigenous MR people died in that, and his vice president stepped in, who was Carlos Mesa, and the Bolivian population was not happy. They, they felt like someone was representing them that they did not want, a movement in general was representing them that they did not want, and Abel Morales was the leader of the opposition, opposition movement then, and he... He uh, became, he was elected in that context. So those first, let's see, about three years when he was president, Abel himself doesn't count as part of his presidency because he made a new constitution in 2009. So in 2009 is when Abel himself and his party consider his first term, which in itself, I personally think that's kind of wishy-washy. And some people say he's, he was being elected for a fourth term right now. And some people say it was only a third term because of that. That's like one part of it. Since 2009, he's had two terms. 2016 was when he had the referendum, February 21st, 2016, to see if he could run again. And the question was this, like, like according to Bolivia's constitution, Abel can't run for a third term, in quotations, fourth term, if you count the three, the three years he didn't count before. But he wanted to see, he just wanted to ask the people if he was allowed to run again. That referendum was a no by like a hair. Um, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was like something like 51, 49%. Um, and then there was talk afterwards about how that, from people on, on the left and from his party specifically, that that referendum wasn't fair because there was a scandal that was released about Avo's mistress and all of this stuff. And so people were saying that that, um, that referendum wasn't fair. That referendum was left for a while. And then in, uh, I don't remember exactly when it was, but about a year later, uh, or no, actually I do remember. It was in December of 2018, so over a year later. The tribunal left to a court in Bolivia said that no, Evo is going to run in 2020. And they used kind of like an obscure, um, an obscure like international human rights uh, agreement that Bolivia and a lot of other countries are a part of to basically argue that it's against Bolivia's, the rights of Bolivian people, if more than half of Bolivia wants him to run again and he can't run. And that was, that happened at the end of 2018. And so by the beginning of 2019, people knew like, okay, it was going to be run, be running in October, 2020. I mean, 2019, sorry, I got the views mixed up. But, um, uh, so when that was released, when it was said like by the, the court that Ava was going to run again, a lot of people protested then as well on the right and on the left, just for the sake of democracy, feeling that, look, there was already a referendum asking you who, if he could run again, and the answer was no. And then this court, which is primarily mass, is using like this obscure international human rights pact to say that like it's against Bolivia's human rights if he can't run again if a majority supports him, which like just isn't really how democracy works. So I would say that, yeah, like, the fact that he was running again this time for a lot of people, including myself, like it wasn't very democratic. And I do think that it's really sad. Like it's really sad because it's created the situation now in which a lot of ground has been lost. Like a lot of ground that was made when Abel was president has been lost. And, and yeah, I mean, and I think Abel, I mean, I don't know personally what Abel thinks, but I think a lot of people who are Abel supporters and Linera himself has said it, like that they made mistakes and that they're seeing that these mistakes have caused these consequences. But at the same time, the like the the racist backlash, the anti-indigenous backlash, the like Catholic evangelical 
um, rhetoric that is surging forward now, like that is kind of a wave that is that is happening in Brazil right now. That is happening in a lot of countries in in, I mean, not in the same way, but in, in a similar way in the U.S. That's like that's like a wave. And because this has this electoral crisis happened in Bolivia, that wave is able to put its foot in the door in Bolivia, and it's happening in Bolivia too. You mentioned so, you mentioned the 2003 gas wars. That was preceded by the 2001, I believe it was, water wars. We covered yeah. both of those here on the show as they were happening. Those were both about privatization of uh, resources, whether it was water or gas. How much of the struggle that is happening, the political struggle that is happening within Bolivia between the right and the left, how much is it about privatization? Oh, my gosh. Like largely about privatization. Like, if you look at what's happening historically, like the historical roots of what's happening, it's all about capitalization and privatization. Because Bolivia, if we go, if we step back a little bit, like Bolivia had like a revolution in 1952 where they nationalized all, they nationalized the mines, they nationalized um, natural resources. They also had an agrarian reform where they like split up the land, but was not only owned by people of Spanish descent, and for the first time, indigenous people could own their own land. And the idea was like, if you're working the land, it's yours. Um, so like a, a Marxist idea, essentially. And that happened way back in 1952. Then there was an era of dictatorships in Bolivia, starting in the 60s, ending in 1981, that was part of Operation Condor, so very supported by the US, where dictators during that time had different, different kinds of economic policies. But that dictatorship caused extreme economic depression in Bolivia. And in the early 1980s, Bolivia had like, like globally one of the worst economic depressions. And the way that it was fixed in quotation marks was like shock catch, like shock doctrine, like, like capitalization, neoliberal capitalization with people who were trained in the US, by the way, like Jeffrey Sachs, for example. And so that was in the 1980s. And since then in the 1980s, up until the water wars and the gas wars, in 2000, starting in 2000, get the get the water wars in two, were in 2000, the gas wars were in 2003. That was the Bolivian people saying like, we've had enough. We finally had enough. Like we, you can't go and privatize our water. That's basically like privatizing the air, you know. And so that that is the context that led into what's happening now. And there is a sector of people in Bolivia who have always been against that movement. There are people, especially in the Santa Cruz department in the lowlands, but everywhere who have still that capital from 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 way before like colonial capital and didn't want this movement this like socialist indigenous movement happening in bolivia so those people are like part of the opposition now that have been against bolivia i mean been against evo since the very beginning it's important to mention that the opposition has a wide spectrum now and there are people on the left who are part of the opposition too and there are indigenous people part of the opposition too but there is that part of the opposition that has always been against evo's movement precisely because they're against the idea of moving away from neoliberalization and capitalization. And that's what we're seeing now too, is that Evo was able, was able to do something that like hasn't been possible under capitalism anywhere, was that he was able to create an indigenous middle class. Like he's been able to bring up these people who basically weren't citizens before, and now they're like, they were able to be politicians, they were able to be public officials, like their languages are spoken in banks, their languages are spoken in public hospitals, they're able to wear their traditional clothing in government offices, like all that stuff was completely new. And there is a, a sector of living society who, who are against that itself. Um, yeah. Uh, Nick yeah. Estes writes in a garden, <clears throat> excuse me, in an article in The Guardian that Avo's critics from the anti-state left and right are quick to point out his failures, but it was his victories that fomented this most recent violent backlash. Avo and his party, the indigenous movement for socialism, MAS, as we were saying, nationalized key industries and used bold social spending to shrink extreme poverty by more than half, lowering the country's Gini coefficient, which measures income inequality by a remarkable 19%. During Avos and Mas's tenure, much of Bolivia's indigenous majority population has for the time in their lives, first time in their lives, lived above poverty. Do you believe this is a coup, an overthrow, whatever you want to call it, uh, of a corrupt administration? Or is this something to overthrow a very successful government at fighting poverty? Is this about you know, uh, fighting corruption, or is this about lifting, uh, fighting against people being lifted out of poverty? 
Yeah. Um, first off, I just wanted to say that I read Nick's article as well, and I think it's fantastic. And um, I think it's great that he was able to write it because he's from the, I believe, the Sioux tribe. I don't want to get that wrong, but I know he's Native American um, from the U.S. So it's kind of highlighting how, like, this what's happening right now in Bolivia is something that's on the minds of indigenous and Native people globally, not just in the U.S. So, yeah, thanks to Nick for writing that article. And, yeah, to your question of... Is it a coup against a corrupt government or is it a coup against like all of these changes that have been able to be made under uh, under AVO and kind of like the economic changes? I think I would say it's both to a certain degree. Like I don't want to deny the fact. And I also think that we have to be careful, especially as people from the United States, to focus too much on like what we think in terms of like our, our like politics, especially for leftists and just say, oh, this is definitely a coup um, against like all of these great changes that, that have been made because there are a lot of people in Bolivia who are on the left who don't necessarily support neoliberalism and like intense class division who also wanted Evo to step down. So I want to acknowledge that, especially because I'm not Bolivian. But that being said, I would say that yes, this is largely like fi uh, fighting back against this movement that has been able, this pink tide movement that wasn't able to make it in Venezuela, wasn't able to make it with Rafael Correa and in Ecuador, um, largely wasn't able to make it in Cuba, a bit of a different situation. But for the most part, there's this wave in going across the Americas right now that's moving towards, I would say fascism, but but capitalization, capitalization neoliberalism, that like a lot of people in Bolivia are supporting that and want that. Um, and so kind of like, this is the opportunity, I guess I would say like, Evo and Linara and his government made the mistake for a variety of reasons, which like it's hard to say why they weren't able to put forward a new person and Evo wasn't willing to step down. And I also want to mention that it may not just be Evo and Linara himself, because a lot of his cabinet members below him would change out if he were to step down and they probably didn't want that as well. So we don't know the kind of pressure that Evo was under to stay, you know? But beyond all of that, like, the, the fact that he that he stepped down and in this way that was clearly co coerced with violence by the military is 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 a victory for a lot of people who were not happy with the changes that have happened under Evo economically and socially. Yeah. You know, uh, in the Nick Essie's quote that I was just saying, he says that the indigenous it's a majority indigenous country. I have seen numbers that vary from the uh, Bolivians self-identifying as indigenous as high as 62%. I saw another number at 41%. I've seen another number at 20%. And it seems that all these statistics are kind of obfuscating whether this is a majority indigenous country or not. Is Bolivia a majority indigenous country? Yes. Uh, yes, it is a majority indigenous country. And yeah, it's interesting kind of like the way that these different statistics are gathered and the way that the questions are asked, like have a lot of weight on how people answer. But yeah, 100% Bolivia is an indigenous country. And like the the fact that, that I don't know, that people would ask that is kind of absurd to me. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, because I saw the number, and I even saw people on the right uh, saying that this is not a majority indigenous country because of these reasons. And the New York Times said that the country is primarily a Christian country. Is that an accurate statement? Um, um, okay, so Bolivia, a lot of people in Bolivia are Catholic, like in the fact that they're culturally Catholic because of like the, because of Spanish colonization, what you could say about all of Latin America. Now, saying that, and then saying that it's a Christian country in like a US context are two completely different things. Like, and something that's really beautiful about kind of the resistance of indigenous people and Afro-Bolivian people in Bolivia is they celebrate uh, all different kinds of beliefs that in part, and in a lot of ways are influenced by Catholicism. But talking about it as like, a Christian country in like the Puritan way that is in like the U.S. context that like doesn't it doesn't it's just it's like apples and oranges basically. 
You write that Luis Fernando Camacho, a right-wing evangelical lawyer from Santa Cruz, who has largely led the opposition movement over the last three weeks, has spouted extremely violent and xenophobic rhetoric to the point that he's been dubbed the Bolsonaro of Bolivia. We've talked to yeah. our car- correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brian Mir, on several occasions. He works for Brazil Wire and Telesur, and uh, he's been talking about the rise of Christian evangelicalism and the role that that has played in Brazil. What role has Christian evangelicalism played in the ouster of Morales as president of Bolivia. Yeah, well, I think that's starting to come to light. Like, really, this past week, I was largely unaware of it until this past week. Um, but Camacho, like, the way that he, like I said before, w- like, the day that Evo stepped down, he, like, put the Bible on Bolivia's national flag and said that um, the Pachamama would never enter the government palace again. That was, like, a very clear statement making a division like that these indigenous beliefs and these indigenous just traditions that infuse Bolivia and like in a very fundamental way are like no longer welcome in government is what he's saying. And um, his, uh, well, this, the Addo declared president, Agnes, um, that's another thing is like whether or not she's even legitimately the president is um, up for debate, but she also is extremely like using this, this rhetoric, this Christian rhetoric, saying things, there's tweets that have surfaced. And I also want to note that there's talk of some of these tweets are fake. So, and so that, that's something to look into. But she's saying things as well, like that we're getting rid of this witchery, we're getting rid of these satanic practices. And just talking about indigenous practices in Bolivia in that way is just like so, it's so heartbreaking and also just so shocking and scary to read because like, like the, there has been something that I wouldn't even call it syncretism, it's beyond syncretism, but there's a practice of religion in Bolivia where people are Catholic and they also respect the Pachamama and they also make despachos and pagos like uh, offerings to the Pachamama and, to, and they also believe that the mountains are psych- sacred and sentient beings. And those things, you can hold both of those things in Bolivia, like they aren't in contradiction. And the whole, the idea that they have to be in contradiction or that, that they're in conflict is a, a purely Christian Catholic idea that there's only space for like the Trinity, there's only space for God and there isn't space for these other things that are supposedly satanic and, and witchery and that kind of stuff. Like that's using language that's going back 500 years. And that's just, it's shocking. It's really shocking. I, I really appreciate that nuance. According to the Washington-based think tank Center for Economic Policy and Research, as we were mentioning earlier, in their report, What Happened in Bolivia's 2019 Vote Count, the Role of the OAS Electoral Observation Mission, they report the OAS, Organization of American States, helped design Bolivia's vote counting systems. Then, after the election, the OAS objected to the vote counting systems, even though they were used the same way in previous elections. The OAS then made unfounded accusations of fraud with suspect statistical analyses and released a politicized audit that essentially allowed the coup in progress to succeed. How impartial is the OAS? Because in the many of the criticisms that I have seen of Evo Morales, they say that the OAS is a very impartial organization. So how impartial is it? Uh, that's a good question. Honestly, like I haven't looked too much into like the inner workings of the OAS to be able to answer that question. What I can say is a few things. Uh, according to my understanding of what the OAS, first off, what the OAS released on Sunday, which is when Ava stepped down, was like preliminary stuff. They didn't actually release their full audit until Tuesday. So that's one thing. Another thing is, according to what I understand from the OAS, they were saying that the 40% or the over uh, 40% that Avo got, there was no fraud, and that there there were irregularities in the 10% after, which I would say any person who was living in Bolivia could know that there were irregularities like I was in Cochabamba at the time and there was I'm not gonna remember exactly what days it was but basically we were waiting for the results and then there was a span of like 23 hours when there was nothing said and then it was said later that there he was like several points higher than before and that gap in time where there was silence wasn't explained so that is an irregularity that like I can mention like I'm, I'm not the, the OAS so there's that to be said but also um, I do know that the Center for Economic and Policy Research released something the following day that said that there was no evidence that the, the Bolivia election results were affected by irregularities or fraud. And they had like a, a statistical anal- analysis to show that. So at that point, it's kind of like, 
I don't really know what to make of the OAS versus the, the CEPR and all that stuff. Um, and also a final thing I would note is that Bolivia's elections in 2002, I believe it was, the one when Goni was elected, were, were like Goni only won by 20 something percent of the vote. He wasn't majority and he was supported by a team of political analysis from Washington, D.C., um, legally, technically, but he was hired. He hired that team to support him and kind of like make it so that this president that was unpopular in Bolivia because of his neoliberal poli policies be elected. And that was like praised by by the United States. And like that, looking at when I just look at it, I look at those elections in 2002 and I look at the elections now, the ones in 2002 seem a whole lot more regular to me. So anyway. President uh, Trump applauded the overthrow of Morales and on Twitter and said on Twitter that Venezuela is next. To what extent do you think the U.S. is behind the coup? And the reason I ask is I hate when people here in the United States completely erase the political agency of any nation's people by blaming any right. and everything on the United States. So to what degree right. do you think the United States is behind this coup? Could have it happened without support from the United States? Yeah, and I really appreciate that you say that you hate that. I also hate that. And I think it's really important to like, especially if you're like English language media from the U.S. covering what's happening in Bolivia, just to like say outright, oh, this was a U.S. U.S. back coup and focus on that and kind of like make it the larger part of the larger picture of U.S. intervention in Latin America without considering like the nuance of what's going on within Bolivia itself, like why people are or for Evo. Most of the people here like have their own arguments that have nothing to do with the U.S. So I really appreciate that you say that. Um, and yeah, to answer your question, I know that really recently um, there were tapes released, audios released that kind of suggest that there was support by Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, um, uh, other other people in the U.S. Um, I actually haven't listened to these tapes yet. They were released yesterday. Um, so I think that there is likely that there was probably some some support and some influence, but I think it's also really important to note the difference between like a U.S. backed coup and a U.S. supported coup, and it's important to talk about those differences specifically because of what you just said. That, for example, when we think of Operation Condor that happened in in the 70s in Latin America, those were U.S. backed coups, and when we talk about what's happening right now. I think maybe more will come out. Like, I think looking at these tapes would be helpful to understand. But what I would say right now is that this is a coup that happened because of an electoral crisis that was building since that referen referendum in 2016 and has also been building because of growing anti-Indigenous and anti-equality, anti-socialist sentiments in Bolivia that, that exploded during these elections. And that that on its own, like that not related to the U.S., is largely what happened. And at the same time, it's quite obvious that the U.S. very much supports what's happening. Yeah. You uh, write that the question on many Bolivians' tongues now is the same as it has been for the last three weeks. Is there a way out? Is a long, protracted, even shooting war, a civil war, highly like likely, if not inevitable in Bolivia? I hate using the word inevitable, but is how likely is a civil war in Bolivia? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, um, me and my colleagues here were really disheartened and really surprised and really upset that the violence has only escalated since Evo stepped down, um, uh, like, a week and a half ago at this point, um, that there was there was a situation last Thursday in Sakaba outside of Cochabamba where where people were just shot down by by the police and in in Cochabamba itself the day before five people were shot down and people are beginning to arm themselves like starting starting right after Evo stepped down El Alto um the the sister city to La Paz people in El Alto started to arm themselves and so kind of seeing those things happen after he stepped down is really scary and really disheartening and I I don't think that I can say or many people can say right now like if that means it's going to move to like a full-on civil war situation, um, I, I, yeah, I honestly say that I, I don't think I could say anything about that, and most people can't. But what I can say 
is that before Avo stepped down, people were like, this isn't going to get better. This isn't going to, there isn't going to be violence. There isn't going to be an end to the violence unless there is some kind of change politically. The change politically has happened and the violence is worse. And also something to note, Agnes, the, the president who, I mean, it's, argue, it's arguable if she's constitutionally the president, she was the next in line because all of the other people before her stepped down because of threats to their family and she was the first person. She's like the, the vice president, the second vice president in the Senate or something like that. She, she didn't step down because she's part of the opposition. She wasn't having threats against her and she's like able to take advantage of this opportunity. When she swore in on Tuesday, there was not a, a majority of the Senate present. So, so according to that, she wasn't officially sworn in. But beyond all that, since she's been president, which has now been like a week and uh, a week and a day, she's made two presidential decrees. One is that the military no longer has any criminal consequence for shooting people, and another one is that she's she's arming the military. She put I don't it was over three hundred thousand dollars towards giving more arms to the military. So these are kind of things where it's like first off, if you're just supposed to be a transitional president until the elections in January, like why are you doing presidential decrees that change laws in Bolivia? And why are both of those laws specifically about killing people? So that's like very terrifying. Um, yeah. I, I got to ask you, I got a couple more questions for you, but I got to ask you, is there construction going on in the room that you're in right now? Because I keep hearing this drilling noise. Um, not in the room that I'm in, but there is outside here. I'm going to move to the other side of the room. No, that's okay. I was just curious if it was outside or in, uh, indoors or outside. It was pretty, I was, I was just curious about that. So, uh, yeah. you, uh, Lozado, uh, s- uh, stepped down in 2003 during the gas wars and was re- replaced by Carlos Mesa, who has been linked to the recent ouster of Evo Morales. You write that earlier this summer, I asked a taxi driver in Sucre his thoughts on Carlos Mesa's potential election. The driver told you it would be a shame if Mesa were elected, but it also is not the same Mesa from 2003. Neoliberal presidents can no longer take advantage of the people like they could before. The Pueblo has awakened. But then you were just talking about how Añez is already putting these laws in power that would seem to stretch beyond her presidency. Would Mesa not be as bad as many fear? Or are situations happening on the ground right now with Añez creating these new laws that would make maybe Mesa would be as bad as people fear? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Honestly, what's really been interesting about Mesa the last month of this is that he's been like not really part of what's going on at all. Like like the, the people who have been the main, well, Camacho has been the main like opposition movement. There's been a couple other like, uh, like the fact that the, the police mutinied was a huge thing as well. And those kind of move, movements has been what's pushing forward this conflict, this crisis, and for Avo to step down. Mesa, like Mesa, when he was president in, in, right before Avo was president, because Goni stepped down in 2003, he was only president for a couple of months and he didn't do much. And kind of like the fear that, uh, the kind of like historical irony almost that he was running against Avo was because people remember, like it was less than 20 years ago, people remember Black October when over 60 Aymara people were killed by the military in El Alto because they were fighting back against the gas wars. And Mesa was the vice president during that, and that was the state army. So that's why Goni and Mesa were on trial in 2018, sorry, in 2017. Um, no, no, sorry, it was in 2018. In April 2018, they were on trial um, with the question of like, were those deaths, can they be linked to their administration? And many people feel like, yes, they could. Like Mesa, there's a lot of graffiti everywhere, especially coming up with these elections that said Goni equals Mesa. Goni was the president during the gas war. Mesa was his vice president. So people are remembering that and kind of like historical consciousness and the importance of historical consciousness in Bolivia is incredibly important. Is, and go ahead. Said, yeah, I think what's happening now, like I think a lot of people on both sides of or on all sides of the political spectrum in Bolivia, who wanted Bolivia, who wanted able to step down. I don't think most people were expecting people like Camacho and Añez to step in their place. And I, from what I know about Mesa and the fact that he's been really, really, really silent this past month, I don't think that he's the same thing as them. 
Um, so honestly, like, I think it might, it might have been a better outcome for Mesa to have just won the elections um, and for this not to be happening. But um, I don't know. Uh, to your question of if Anya's is like arming like new laws and creating a scenario in which Mesa as a president would actually be a lot worse than he would have been before. I think that's very possible just because of the infrastructure that's being set up. But I don't think it's fair to assume that Mesa has the same kind of like hate and vitriol and racism and evangelicalism as what we're seeing now. Is this all about lithium? That's the other thing I keep hearing, that this is nothing, this is about absolutely nothing but foreign companies wanting to get into uh, the lithium industry that would be then privatized and taken over by uh, extractive corporations from the West. Is this all about lithium? Yeah, um, that's an interesting thing as well. Like some people have, have even been calling it a lithium coup. Um, I would say that it would be a stretch to say that it's all about lithium. I think like a lot, the reasons that Avo stepped down or had to step down and the violence and the hate that's happening right now on Bolivia, like on Bolivians' minds, I haven't spoken to one person from Bolivia themselves that have like brought up lithium. So I think it's possible that it's related, but I don't think I would say that like this is all about lithium and this is a lithium coup or anything like that. All right, so I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with independent journalist Jacqueline Kovarik, who posted the article, Bolivia's anti-Indigenous backlash is growing. Jacqueline is based in Cochabamba, Bolivia, and is a graduate of NYU's Center on Latin American and Caribbean Studies in the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find out more about Jacqueline at our website, JacquelineKovarik.com, which we'll have a link at our website directly to that. And you can follow her on Twitter at JM underscore Kovarik. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Jacqueline, and I apologize for this. It's our question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. So is what is taking place right now in Bolivia, and this isn't a multiple choice. You can answer this question in any way you want. Is this a race war, a resource war, a religious war, a class war? Does it fall within any of those categories or all of those categories? I wouldn't say religious. Um, I mean, I guess I would say that people like Añez and Camacho are using re religious rhetoric, but I wouldn't say that it's a religious war. I would say that it's, oh, that's an interesting question. I guess overall I would say it's a class war. I would say that people are fighting back against these changes that have happened under AVO that have made the playing field politically, socially, economically, completely different and so much more fair for indigenous and Afro-Bolivian people in Bolivia. And I think people are fighting back against that. And I think like, I think that the issue of race, the issue also of gender, the issue of, of language, um, and the issue of belief systems all fall into that. Because those people, those people who have been excluded from, from participating in Bolivia as citizens for centuries, like those things are all part of their identity, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. I'm going to be contacting you in the future because I was even going to talk about some of the writing that you've done about Peru because the issues with the indigenous and throughout South America is just fascinating. So we're going to be bugging you in the future to have you back on the show because I really appreciate your nuanced look at this and the way that you weren't just towing the line for either side. Thank you so much for being on our show. And again, thanks to Dan Beaton for suggesting you be on our show. Uh, great talking to you, Jacqueline. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to Dan. I didn't know he suggested me. So shout out to Dan Beaton as well. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Take care. Live from land stolen from the natives, this is hell. It's time for listener feedback that has been sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Richard emails us writing, I was listening to your interview with Wendy Brown, which was simultaneously the most comprehensive and precise discussion of neoliberal neoliberalism I've ever heard. Please have her back on the show. 
I hope to make it up to office hours again soon, but in the meantime, could you send along that anti-cop slur you teased on the show? Should prove useful now that I'm living near Bridgeport, this community here in Chicago where a lot of cops live. Keep up the great work. Richard, thanks, Richard. And anyone who wants to know the incredibly crude anti-cop slur that I truly enjoy but cannot say, even online, email me with your own promise that whatever the slur is, you will not be so offended that you will stop listening to This Is Hell or subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Speaking of our interview with Wendy Brown, Daniel writes, Absolute. Excellent. Chuck misspoke and inadvertently coined this word in his recent interview with Wendy Brown, and it really deserves to be formally defined. Absolutely obsolete and widely disseminated. Also, given current realities, would it not make sense to ask every guest for their Thoughts on global climate breakdown. Love the show. Thanks for your excellent work, DZ. And Alex and I have talked about that. We've talked about putting a question about climate change in each and every interview. And I I just forgot about it because I get so caught up in the stuff that I'm reading at that point in time. So you're right about that, Daniel. Daniel is absolutely correct. And if you keep listening as soon as, you know, to that interview, as soon as Wendy's offline, I explain why I was having trouble speaking. My tongue was scraping on a bit of bone that had suddenly protruded from my lower gum and was poking my mouth. So I was having trouble speaking. It's it's the second bone that's suddenly come out of the same spot in a month. Uh, the first time it happened, I went to my dentist who ground it down. This time I was able to pull it out while doing the show. I have no idea why this is happening. My dentist told me it can happen if you are on chemo and taking something called biophosphates. I'm not on chemo. So I asked my dentist how common this is, and he clearly stated, it's not uncommon, which that doesn't help. We got this cryptic email from longtime listener Adam. Chuck, I'm in Hong Kong. It's war crimes. Here's a great frontline live stream source of news. T.me slash HK protest info. I learned a lot and people want the world to know. Thanks, Adam. Again, that's T.me slash HK protest info. I received Aunt Adam's uh, email shortly after a past guest on our show, the sociologist Rahul Mahajan, posted on Facebook this summary of the protests happening around the world. The rules are funny. If you're Bolivian, indigenous, or Chilean of European descent, you're good. If you're on the side of the United States, you're bad, unless you're Kurdish, in which case you're good. If the liberals support you, you're bad, unless you're Kurdish. If you're fighting against a genocidal minority regime supported by Russia and Iran, you're bad. If you're fighting for freedom against a country that still calls itself communist, screw you. Which may be my favorite comment I've seen posted online this week, because it really does take care of that whole thing about being against the Hong Kong protests, but for the Chilean protests. And I don't know. Finally, we got a message at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is how radio Bradley writes to ask, what is the deal with that intro clip where someone shouts, thank you, Chuck. And Chuck says, you're welcome, Neil. So I always thought it was a reference to one of the people Neil Young sings about in the 1972 song, The Needle and the Damage Done. But that song is about his bandmate and crazy horse, Danny Whitman, and their roadie who both died from heroin. And the roadie, his name is not Chuck either. So I had to look it up. It's actually about Chuck Berry, as the recording we use is from right after his death in, wait, 2017? That can't be correct either, as... The music is from Ark, which is an album Neil Young put out in 1991. So it's got to be about me. That's listener feedback. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com and message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And if we like your email or message, we'll read it on the show. This week's question from Al is, what's happening? What? What's keeping you up at night? What's keeping you up at night? Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. This week's winner gets a copy of the book we already featured on this week's show, Franny Noodleman's Fighting Sleep, The War for the Mind in the U.S. Military. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Oh, yeah, we got a bunch of What is keeping you up at night? John T. says, live broadcasts of civil unrest from around the globe and also Viagra. Second, second part didn't need to be in there, John. <laughs> <laughs> Meredith A. says, I used to think insomnia, but it's just my phone. Ladio says... <laughs> I kind of like that. Ladio says, box wine, pot, and nature shows. 
Nathaniel T says metaphysical snarge. <laughs> if you have to look that up, snarge is uh, the what's left of a bird when it gets sucked through uh, an airplane jet. <laughs> thank, thank you, Nathaniel. Tim K says vampires in all their forms. Nick A says the nagging suspicion that public education, much like all public institutions except law enforcement, is under attack from inside as well as outside, and that I am powerless to affect any change as a teacher. <laughs> what's keeping you up at night? Ariana H. says, the end of the Anthropocene. Astrid N. said, nothing. So totally satisfied that I'm watching the ultimate reality TV show ever conceived. How could anything go wrong? Joshua L. says, who likes Panera enough to want it delivered? <laughs> I, thought, I thought you'd like that one. Uh, Danielle says, Russia unpost-racializing America. Uh, producer Alex's pick to click is Kelly H. who said, Yeast infection or maybe pinworms. I have so many good stories about Kelly H. That I'll share you all with you oh, really? off here. Oh my God, yes. Uh, MTB says Dylan Thomas. <laughs> Mark H. says my incredible sense of balance. Pietor P. says I'm wondering when Devin Nunes will finally go full toady and catch a fly with his tongue mid-impeachment hearing. What is keeping you up at night? Jack B. says coffee. Stephen S. says wondering if heliocentrism was a mistake. <laughs> Luke H. says, the Buttigieg dance. Uh, do you know about this, Chuck? Oh, my God. How much money? I want to apologize to everybody for anybody mentioning that on this show. <laughs> it's so how much How much money would we have to do on Patreon uh, for you to do that dance as a viral video? One gazillion dollars. Dan T. says, all that bathroom meth my kids keep cooking up to help pay for our medical insurance. Never well, get high on your own supply, kids. Those are resourceful kids. Dick H. says, frequent urination. <laughs> Lisa B. says, the ghost of Christmas past and his effing chains again. <laughs> Bradley R. says, the meth of meritocracy. Warren L. says, is the house on fire? Maybe I should check. <laughs> Solidarity with that viewpoint of Warren L. Uh, Benjamin C. says, WKRP in Cincinnati. A couple more responses. <laughs> Jesus. A couple more responses to the question from hell, which is, what's keeping you up at night? Aaron D. says, the unfair way the fake news media, the deep state, and Democrats portray the honest efforts of President Trump to fight the corruption in the Ukraine one Biden at a time. <laughs> Naomi G says nothing sleep is my defense mechanism against hell world Donald H says the energy drink I drank three hours ago Marty P says the midnight sun Jeffy D says outside in the alley below my window someone is playing old south old south huskow harmonica Gorilla G says oh just my angst and finally Marco G says nothing at all everything is awesome since the lobotomy Leave your response to this week's question from hell. What's keeping you up at night at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com. This is slash this is hell. And you can listen to tomorrow's Patreon show exclusively for subscribers featuring a new monologue by me and a classic interview from our catalog of over 23 years of this is hell. And I believe we are going to be sharing one, if not more of our interviews on the water wars and gas wars that we covered back in 2001. 2003. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Curry's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little Indian neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, this is Hell Office Hours is a think and drink. Join us any, each, and every Wednesday evening, including this evening at Curry's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. So I hope to see you all tonight, beginning at about 6 p.m., and I'm probably going to have to be out of here by like nine at the very latest because uh gotta keep working on saturday or fridays and next week's shows because thanksgiving break is coming up which means a whole bunch of work for me and tune in back here at this is hell.com friday morning at 10 a.m central daylight time when we speak with the former cia case officer who blew the whistle on the cia uh, on, on the CIA. That's Jeffrey Sterling, who's author of the new book, Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing the show, and I want to thank our guest, Jacqueline Kovarik, for giving us such a fantastic response, or f such a fantastic conversation on what's actually happening in Bolivia. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. My demon. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh -huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.